couple of years ago, it was actually the year COVID started, March of 2020, we took a skiing trip to, we flew into Denver. And Denver has an off-site rental car place, my worst nightmare. So I, I take the shuttle, take the shuttle, get to where I'm finally getting the car, and my family's just, you know, waiting back at the airport for me. And things are a little hectic when you're traveling with three kids and all these suitcases. And I just left out all that on Kelsey and her parents and Nisha were with us. And I was like, I, I've got to get this car back. I know where I'm going, the pickup line at the airport. I have no idea how to get there. So what do you do when you know where you're going but you don't know how to get there? GPS, yeah. So Google Maps, I pop it in. And then I'm like, well, I, I kind of know where I'm going. Let me just get started. And then this, this message of redirecting or whatever it says on my application starts, starts coming up. Because it's, it's having poor connection issue. I don't have service. Which means that I don't really know where I'm going because my connection is, there's a lot of metaphors here. I hope you're tracking. I'm not just talking about getting to the airport. There's some connection issues that, that I don't really know what the next turn is. But then as I'm going, I also realize there's a lot of signs happening. And I don't know where I'm going, so I'm looking at the GPS, but I'm unable to read the signs. And so it's like, oh, no, I just missed a turn. I'm like calling Kelsey a little frantic because when I don't know where to go, I start getting anxious. Do you ever feel like that? And I'm not just talking about going to the airport, right? And so there's signs that tell me. And then it's like, well, that's where I want to go. I can see it. But there's, you have to have like special access. That seems to only be for other people. And so what I end up doing sometimes is like I slow down. You know, there's like construction blockages and one ways and taxis and buses only. And it's like, all right, I don't, I just don't know what to do here. There's cars piling up behind me. There's cars swinging around me. And sometimes I'm convinced that's what it feels like in life to come to new transitions and decisions where I know vaguely where I want to go, but I don't know how to get there. And sometimes I can get wrapped up in, in getting there and I can go in my own speed that I lose connection and that I see all these people who are either affected by my slowness backing up behind me or they're speeding around because they seem to know exactly what they want in life. And none of this seems to be, again, I'm not just talking about getting to the Denver airport, am I? Because a lot of us, I think, are in seasons of transition and decision. I want to give you a little time to pull out the bulletin. And if I'm, I'm going to actually ask you to take notes today. Everybody, take notes today. If you don't have a bulletin, just walk up into a, another row. There's a little diagram that will be familiar to you. But this is the, where you start at the top of the page. Can you just answer this question, literally writing out an answer? Where are you facing transition or decision? Look at you guys. Y'all are doing it. I hope, I hope you're not just like leaving, but you're doing it. So let's start with that question. At the top of, of your bulletin, where are you facing transition or decision? Transition or decision. I'm going to give you a little time.
in life, it can feel like we need a navigation system. I don't even know where I want to go, some of us. I know where I want to go, but I don't know how to get there. Or I know where I'm going, I know how to get there, but is now the time that I need to make this journey? There's lots of ways that we need some kind of navigation system to figure this out. And I, I was just reflecting this week as I was writing these, these, uh, these reflections in my notes. I was asking, where are you? I was, I was kind of putting myself in your shoes. Where are you facing transition and decision? And what I, what I did is I kind of just outlined recent conversations. Some of you, I was just, Ashley, are you here this morning? You just graduated yesterday. Hayden, I think you graduated yesterday. Is that right? Official. One walked, one just mailed it in, and it's like, uh, get, send me the diploma. I was talking with Jillian. She just took the PSAT and got her results back. And it was like this flood of now you have to figure out college. Some of you are finishing a semester or finishing a degree program, and you're like, what's next? Some of you are trying to figure out what's your major. There's all these kind of dimensions of school and education and this early vocation discernment that starts happening. There's relationships. I've been talking with a single person who's processing who to date and how to find them. Another, after years of dating, is now single. A young couple commits to marriage. A couple's debating whether to stay married. And some of these people you know who I'm talking about, and other ones you're like, who is he talking about? These are real, real people with names in my notes that you can't see. Some of you are navigating housing. There are multiple couples that are buying homes, you know, contracts and closings and all of that happening right now. Some of you are renovating. Some of you are building. Others need a out of where they're living so that you can find a new place. Family and relationship stuff, there's, there's transition here for us. Some are bringing baby home from the hospital to a nursery. We have some praying about whether to have a child or not. We have some about praying about whether to keep trying to have a child after so much loss. Some are sharing ultrasound photos because they have news. With work and with money, some are thinking about starting their vocation. They're, they're done with something, and it's like, let me dive into this new first job. Others are considering retirement and the last chapter of a job. Some feel the tightness of finances, and they wonder, what do we do? Some feel stuck in their jobs. This isn't where I want to be. How do I get out? How do I get into the next thing? Should I cut my hours? Should I go back to work? Should I go full-time? And then one couple, I have a deep dream for what God wants to do in my life. But when do I start moving towards it with focus? And these are just the ones that I thought, I wasn't even trying to do an exercise of like, let me name all the transition that I know of. And, but still, and just those things, there's about 45 adults that are captured in my notes today. I, I think because of the age of, of our church, most of us are in, in the room, are somewhere between 18 and 35. Most of us are between 18 and 35. That's a very transitional, because of the age of our church, but also because of the time that we live in, we just live in a pretty fast-paced, change-filled time. This may be right where you are today, transition and decision, but if it's not, it's going to be very soon.
And so I think we need a lot of wisdom for, for navigating these things. The, the problem is that waiting on the Lord and this transition decision, it's inevitable. It's, it's, it's just constantly coming up. I was kind of struggling with this. After I did that exercise, I was talking to Kelsey, and I said, I just named all of these transitions that for most of these people have already happened. I feel like I'm too late. And she's like, well, the reality is that all these transitions are just going to happen again. And you know, it's, it's just constant. It's inevitable. There's, there's transition, decision, and waiting on the Lord. But it's also critically important. I was looking at a book by uh, a preacher named Andy Stanley. And he says, your decisions determine your story. These, these moments, these transition times, the, the story of your life, every decision becomes a permanent part of our stories. That being the case, he says we should stop at every decision-making juncture and consider the story we want to tell. Perhaps more compelling, we should consider what story we want told about us. He says you decide one decision at a time. You write the story of your life one decision at a time. Our decisions determine the direction and the quality of our lives. It's not only that you keep going into transition and decision. It's that those decisions then write the story of our lives. It's inevitable, it's important, but I think the tension is heightened because we're also fairly ill-equipped to do this, especially to do it by waiting on the Lord. The reason I say this is because the navigation system that's given in our culture isn't a Christian one, and we're not always aware of that. It's implicit. It's like the default manufacturing settings whenever you plug it into the GPS. It's not going to have the Christian navigation system. The, the true north of our culture's navigation seems to be this. My will, not yours be done. And yours is whoever else. My will, not yours be done. I want this. That's really all that matters. Discernment and transition is really, in our culture, about self-actualization. Becoming your best self. Becoming the true you. That, that's what our culture says is the, the goal of the navigation system. And so I need to look out for me because nobody else will. I need to get my own, treat yourself. I need to find myself and express myself. Relationships, what's in it for me? Job, career, vocation, what gets more money or more power for me? The raise, the promotion, the, the new employer, next one up. Whatever will give me what I want. If you won't do what I want, then I'll go find what I want elsewhere. Debt, let's dive in now, give me what I want. And sometimes the, the lines between the cultural navigation system become very blurred with, with even, in some circles, the Christian kind of pathways. Um, I probably shouldn't name this lady because I'm about to really critique her. But there are some kind of, <laughs> within a, a Christian genre, who say things like, you were meant to be the hero of your own story. You and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. Uh, in a Christian publishing house. For Christians, you see, there's this maybe a different set of temptations where it's kind of like, yes, I, I made a wrong turn, and so I'm just going to pray now. <laughs> uh, maybe I should have prayed before, but uh, God, would you bless all these things that I'm doing? Would you just kind of come alongside me and help me do all the things that I want to do? Do you still have, It's still a, a slight version of my will, not yours, be done. Would you bless my will? I know you're, you're the God who's able, you're the God who's capable, would you, would you bless this thing that I want? And there's, there's a lot of truth to that, right? God wants us to have flourishing with him. And so, um, but we have to have wisdom 
And wisdom, I think, is cultivated when we wait on the Lord. What, what this word is, this waiting on the Lord, this process of transition and decision, it's, it's this word discernment. It comes from this idea in the New Testament scriptures of testing the spirits. He says, don't, don't believe every spirit. You have to weigh them. You have to evaluate them. First John says, test the spirits. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, test everything and hold on to the good stuff. So what does it look like to test? The word discernment comes from the word to separate. And what it means is that people who have good discernment can, can separate unhealthy and healthy. They can see between, they can cut between. They're very good at judging in the best way that we would use that word. They can discern, discernment. So what is the core to discernment? I think from a Christian standpoint, the core of discernment is this phrase, wait on the Lord. And today, to draw some wisdom, we're going to look at the book of Acts. We're going to start in Acts 1, but then today we're not exactly anchored in one text. It's more like, let's look at really the Apostle Paul's kind of discernment process. And we're going to be bouncing around um, and I hope that you can stay with me. That's part of why I would love for you to take notes. Let's, let's just kind of set the stage with Acts chapter 1, the very beginning. He's writing this book to Theophilus. It's a follow-up to the Gospel of Luke, to all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And he says, on one occasion, after Jesus has died, he's, he's raised, he's, he's now back, he's appearing to them. While Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know what they're waiting on? They're waiting on the Spirit. And in Acts 2, the very next chapter, it says this promise, you see that word promise here, this promise is for you, and it's for your children, and it's for all who are far off. Christian discernment is based on this reality, that the Spirit of God lives in us. When we wait on the Lord, we're not just waiting on, on signs and movements. We are waiting on a God who loves us and who is in us and who is with us. One of the ways the New Testament talks about this is the word oikos, that God has made you his spiritual house, oikos. He's made you his home. His spirit lives in us. So th this command in Acts 1 to wait is now a reality for people in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the Spirit. And this means that your discernment is Spirit-led. Keep going, though. It says, then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates. The Father has set by his own authority. You see, it's not just that we have the Spirit. It's also that we need the Spirit. God knows what God is doing. I, his we read Psalm 139. His ways and his thoughts are just too lofty for me. His, his mysteries are far beyond me. I can't comprehend the ways of God. God's ways are not my ways. That is above my pay grade. And so discernment, it's recognizing that I have the Spirit in me. And it's recognizing that I need the Spirit to guide me. Times and dates, that's not on me. That's somebody above me. But then he goes on, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? You've seen this before, but through the lens of discernment, what I think it's saying is, is that our discernment is based in a relationship with God. 
And our relationship with God opens up God's perception, not only ours. But then do you see this mission piece at the end? That the goal of what the Spirit is leading his people into is not self-actualization. It is God's mission. I want to give you power. God, what are you going to empower us for? Are you going to empower me for just more money and more power and more happiness? That is not the book of Acts. I will empower you to be my witnesses. And the Spirit of God spearheads the mission of God throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Just think, think of this. You know this. Acts 2, it says that the disciples are filled with the Spirit in Jerusalem. Acts 4, it says once again that the disciples in that room, they're filled up with the Spirit and they go to Judea. In Acts 8, the Spirit shows up and it fills them up for the task and it goes to Samaria. And then in Acts 10, the Spirit comes down on Cornelius and his family and it fills them up and, and it goes to the ends of the earth. The Spirit of God does what he says he's going to do, but he's not saying, yeah, your will, not mine. <laughs> Instead, he's saying, no, my will, not yours. So let's, let's look at a tool this morning. It's on the back of your bulletin. You've seen this tool before, most of you. But if you haven't, I call this the hearing and doing circle. The hearing and doing circle. This is a tool that I got from my friends Dave Clayton and Aaron Etheridge at Onward Church Planting in Nashville. They borrowed it, I think, uh, from another book called Building a Discipling Culture by a guy named Mike Breen. He had a different name. This is the 2.0 version. Hearing and doing circle. And what it starts with is this reality that, for instance, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever hears these words and doesn't do them, he says, you're like a fool that you're just squashed in the sand. But he says, if you hear these words of mine and do them, then you have the strength of a house built on a real foundation. Hearing is critical. But if all you do is hear from the Lord and you don't put it into practice, he says, you're a fool. James says the same thing. He says, we ought to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. So hearing and doing is this rhythm of listening and hearing and then putting it into action and doing. I'm guessing that half of us struggle with one half of the circle, and then the other half of us struggle with the other half of the circle. We're either prone to just dive into something, or we're prone into just thinking about something and not doing. But the, the thing starts with, you see at the top, a God moment. What I mean by a God moment is basically any moment where God gets your attention. But today, we're just really focusing this tool on God moments of transition of decision-making, of I, I'm, at a, I'm at a crossroads, which path do I take? But there's a variety of God moments. God gets my attention all the time in a variety of ways, sometimes small, sometimes big. And the first step is to reflect. This is a personal reflection. The second step, we'll look at both of these more in detail in just a minute, is to discuss with a community. So personal reflection moves into community discussion. And then out of community discussion, comes planning, and then finally doing, putting it into practice. And then the beauty of this circle is that now you're back at another God moment, ready to do it all over again, such as life. Transition is inevitable. Okay, so you ready to dive into to this tool with more teaching on it than, than I've ever shared? Uh, okay, Michael is. He's got two hands up. Everyone else is just like, that's fine. That's fine. If that's what we're doing, we can do that. 
All right. Step one, personal reflection. Personal reflection. What does it look like to practice personal reflection? I think that the, the first kind of piece of what this can look like is to make time for prayer. Now, make time for prayer is really a two-part sentence. The first part is to make time. I think many discernment processes need to have a start and end time. And they, they can be seasons. They can be 40 days. That's, that's a pretty apt time in Scripture. Sometimes in Scripture, they're 40 years. Sometimes in Scripture, they're just moments. But there's still a time that's made. This time means that you don't have to know the answer on the front end. But, Lord willing, by the end of this season, you'll be ready. Does that make sense? Make time, but not just make time, make time for prayer. Make time for prayer. This prayer shows up in a lot of places. I was thinking of the story of Joshua in Joshua chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. Remember these, these, you may not remember, this is kind of a, a random story. There are these people that came from, from Gibeon. They're like sworn enemies that God says, I want you to have nothing to do with them. Make no promises, no covenants with these people. But they put on disguises. They, they show up and they, they give all these gifts. And it, it says in Joshua chapter 9 verse 14, Joshua's men, they took some of these provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Instead, they took the gift, they went in their own wisdom, and then they made a covenant which directly disobeyed what God wanted them to do. They had to live with the consequences for generations because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. Make time for prayer. So a designated waiting period that's filled up with prayer time. Instead of waiting... These people, and often us, we just wade right in, and over and over, when we wade into the waters, the current sweeps us away. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Prayer in the book of Acts is connected to confidence, to boldness. Have you ever had this situation where you were at a transition or a decision, and you just waded right in without making time for prayer? And then you look back, and you, what do you immediately start doing? You second guess. I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I didn't even think to slow down. I just went in my own strength. But in Acts chapter 4, when the people pray, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then the confidence from God came for what he wanted them to do. Prayer is connected to boldness. But in Acts 13, take a look at this. This is a, a story where there's this, this team of people in Antioch, and it says, while they were worshiping, Paul and Barnabas are here, um, Niger, Lucius, Manan, they're all there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, you see what they're making time for? Worship, for fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. After they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Do you see, this is just part of what it looks like to discern in the book of Acts. When God, he's not only having God moments through prayer, but prayer is then part of the processing, part of the reflection that comes in. Make time for prayer. But part of what happens in prayer is that they start hearing from the Lord. So the second piece of what I think reflection can look like is to listen for God's voice. Listen for, so in this time frame that it might even have a beginning and an end, Make room for listening to God. And just think through the book of Acts, all the ways that God communicates to people. In chapter 1, he communicates through Scripture. 
In chapter 2, he communicates through tongues and dreams. In chapter 8, his voice comes to Stephen. His voice comes to Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 10, it's an angel. In chapter 11, it's a vision. In chapter 15, it's a church council. In chapter 20, it's an internal compelling that Paul feels. In chapter 21, it's prophecy of people like Agabus. He, he communicates in a lot of different ways. And, but we have to tune in to listening to his voice, to open up the word, to make time to discern using the voice of God. The, the, the next piece of personal reflection is to look for God's movement. Look for God's movement. I, I love seeing this in the book of Acts. If, if you see, let's see, I think I have it here. Yeah, Acts 14, 27. Paul and Barnabas, they're sent out for the mission, right? You know, they, they're set out and they say, we should go plant churches. We should go share the gospel. And they start doing exactly that. And then as they go, basically they keep getting run out of town. Persecution arises. Sometimes they're getting stoned on their way out of town. Sometimes, but sometimes he says, doors are opened. Do you see this phrase here? They were reporting all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door. God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is something God wanted to happen. Can you picture it? It's like they're going from town to town to town. And in every town, God is opening and God is closing doors. He's opening doors saying, come on in. Here's a Gentile who needs to hear it. And then he's closing doors saying, you better get out of town, sometimes in a basket, because people are coming for you. He's opening doors. Paul talks about open doors a good bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, a great door for effective work has opened to me. In Colossians chapter 4, he's in prison and he says, pray that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. He says, though my doors are locked and though I am chained, can you give me an open door right here where I'm at? In the chains of prison to share open, open doors. You don't have to walk in every open door, though. Take a look at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ because I had found that the Lord opened a door for me. New city, new opportunities, new people. But, verse 13, 2 Corinthians 2, I still had no peace of mind. His, he, in other translations, says, my spirit was troubled. Because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and I went on to Macedonia. You see the process. Here's an open door. Come on in. You know, this doesn't feel right. I need to go check on this, this guy that I love. My brother Titus isn't here. I'm going to walk out. Did you know that if you walk out of an open door, God's going to open another open door? Sometimes there's such pressure, especially for people wired like me who want to do everything the right way and kind of map it out and very intentional people, where we think that if we miss the turn, it's like the airport loop doesn't actually go back around and it's just a, a cliff that you have to drive off of. It's like, no, no, you can, it may take a little more time. That's okay though. You can just make the loop. All the pressure that I feel because people are, are piling up behind me as I'm going slow in traffic and whatever internal anxiety is happening. It's like, no, I can actually just like take the rest stop and try to figure out where I'm going. There's a construction zone. You know, it's okay. I can slow down 
I can open the door, look in, and sometimes, because your spirit may be troubled, you can actually walk out of an open door that the Lord gave you. I want to take the pressure off of getting every door right, because sometimes Paul says that he walks out of open doors. He uses a discernment process to do it. And so he does it by waiting on the Lord in in wisdom. Okay, look at this though. He's not only opening doors. A couple of chapters later, God seems to be closing doors. Look at this. This is Acts 16. He says, I was kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Sometimes, sometimes God slams a door shut. And if you've ever been in a discernment season, there's no greater gift of clarity than a closed door. <laughs> when you just know, I've got, that is not the path we're going down. Okay, that is a road closure. Let's stay on this road. I don't even know where this road goes, but at least it's open, you know? <laughs> Sometimes he closes the door, but look what he does in this closed door. So it says, they passed through Mycenae, went down to Troas, and during the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. He's a Greek man. He's standing and he's begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. We concluded, notice there's a we here. There's a a community discussion that starts happening, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. An open door and a closed door. Look for the movement of God. Closed doors or where that opportunity is not open to you. Open doors or quite literally where someone swings a door open and says, come, come over here. You can actually only be called, this is important to know, you can only be called if someone's asking you to do it. You can decide to do something, but you can only be called if someone's saying, come and do this. Now, sometimes that voice is God calling you to come and do something. Many times, God will use the voices of other people to open doors and to say, we invite you into this thing. Open doors, close doors, look for the movement of God. And then the, the last piece of personal reflection is to practice self-examination. Here's the questions that I'm thinking of here. What are my desires, feelings, and motivations? My desires, feelings, and motivations. This is Psalm 139, right? Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Do you see what he's asking? He's saying, I want to know my motivations like you know my motivations. Because the truth is our motivations are often mixed. And if you do the right thing and the wrong motivations, it can lead to disaster. And if you have the right motivations and do the wrong thing, that can also lead to disaster. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. Stanley, in his book that I mentioned earlier, he calls this the conscience question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there a tension in your conscience that deserves my attention? Is there a tension that deserves my attention? The the kind of church father of discernment is a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. And he says you really need to pay attention to consolation and desolation. Those are words that we would never use, right? But what he means by consolation is, is this moving your heart to comfort? Is this, is this when you reflect on it, is it moving you to deeper, truer love for God? Does it make you come alive for God's mission? That's consolation. Desolation is the opposite, right? It's, does it move you to darkness? Does this move you to selfishness and to laziness 
and to sadness. Does this move you to separation from the Lord? He says you need to pay attention to consolation and desolation. He says in times of desolation, never make a change. He says that is not the time to change the trajectory of your life. If all you're feeling is darkness, wait. This posture of self-examination is really reinforcing not my will, but your will be done. And it's saying, show me my will, and then help me to say, not my will, but yours be done. For Paul, you see this in his missionary journeys. Paul's not, he's not on the pathway to self-actualization. He says, he shows up to places in Acts 14, and he's just celebrating. People are praising God, there's joy. This is his message. You must enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. That's it. That's the message that he, quote, is preaching to all these people. You must enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. And the next verse, they're filled with the Spirit, and there's so much joy. He, he's not going, let's just make me happy. In fact, he says, everywhere I go, there's, there's persecution and rejection and hardship. Hardship is not actually a sign of a closed door. Many times, my professor Everett Hufford over at Harding School of Theology he would say, many times, the Spirit of God leads you where you don't want to go when you don't want to go there. He leads you where you don't want to go when you don't want to go there. He's not in the business of fulfilling the American dream. He's in the business of expanding the kingdom of God. And you must enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. God, he does not ever promise that we will not go through hard stuff. He does promise that as we go through hard stuff, he is with us. That is what it looks like to wait on the Lord. So he, he may lead us into hard stuff. That may be more confirmation than it is anything. So this is personal reflection. These are, these are four points that I think are pretty good. If, if we had more time, we could probably come up with more. But I think these capture a lot of really important pieces. You need a time for prayer. You need a time for listening. You need a time for watching and, and just taking note. And then you need a time to examine your own motives, what's going on internally. But the reflection, very often in our, in our culture, it stays with us. Again, the true north of our cultural navigation system says, my will, not yours be done. And so why would you ever listen to the voice of other people? But Christian discernment and throughout scripture, it says that there is wisdom in the counsel of others. That's what the book of Proverbs is filled with. And so the personal reflection moves into community discussion. Take a look at Acts 15. Acts 15 is filled with community discussion. We saw in 13 how Paul is called. We saw in 14 how the open door for the Gentiles comes. And in 15, they're going to talk about what is happening. Look at this. The apostles and elders, they met to consider the question of what has to happen with these Gentiles. Now, today, you can tell we're not going to focus on the details of the question itself. We're going to focus on the process that we see here. After much discussion, or I think the ESV says, after a lot of debate, <laughs> that Peter got up and he addressed them. You see, they're considering, they're, they're di discussing and debating. They're, they're listening to Peter and then to Paul and Barnabas. And then after that, James, he stands up and he says, listen to me. Simon has described to us, look what he's taking note of. How God first intervened to choose a people. He's looking at the movement of God. And then he says in verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. Do you see how this community discerns? They're, they're looking at scripture. As it is written, and then he quotes from the prophet Amos. So what is this kind of 
quick snapshot of Acts 15 show us about community discussion. First, it's that you need time for it. Again, make time for prayer. Part of what prayer looks like in this season, I think, is praying with and for other people. If, if you have decision or transition coming up, can you invite somebody to pray with you? And I mean with, with you. <laughs> I mean in the presence of you. And yes, also for you. Make time for prayer. Make time to slow down and seek the wisdom of God. The, the next piece here is to listen for wisdom. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. Good questions lead us to better decisions. And so some of this is just matters of wisdom. Wisdom means you have to consider the practicalities of life. Wisdom, in biblical languages, is really the art of living. It's the skill of life. Wisdom pulls in things like, do I have the finances required for this? Do I have the, what will the impact be on, on practical matters like my time and my margin? Let's apply wisdom not only to resources, but also to relationships. What will this do for my relationships? For the relationships that are most important to me, what will this do to my relationship with God? Can you help me see here? Sometimes wise counsel helps us navigate the ways. Jesus himself says, you've got to first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough. He says, anytime you build a tower, anytime you build a wall, anytime you make a decision, you have to sit down and evaluate what will this cost me? And wise advisors help us do that. Next piece here is to examine the tensions. So if personal reflection is letting those tensions arise and taking note, now these are conversations about the tensions. This is where you invite insight into your motivations, your feelings, and your desires. And here's the reality. A lot of us have friends who know our hearts better than we do. And if you're married, you're probably married to that person who, if you gave them permission, could give a gift to you of clarity. But many times, our, our closest friends, our, our loved ones, they're pretty cautious with some of those truths about the tensions that we feel. Because that is, it's a level of trust and vulnerability that has to be established that we're reluctant because we don't want to damage a relationship by offering unasked for wisdom. But if we can kind of approach in humility and actually say, do you have anything to say about th these motivations? And can you explore them? Explore the tensions together. Last piece here is to test with truth and love. I want to give four, four test questions. Test with truth and love. The first test question is this. Does this decision or transition, does the direction that I want to go align with the truth of Scripture? Does that make sense? <laughs> it's, is God's truth in alignment with this thing? Ignatius, he says, uh, I was talking to Jess. She's downstairs uh, teaching. She was tr trying to summarize some of her reading on Ignatius. And she says, like, first of all, Ignatius says that you never choose between good and evil. Christian discernment is always a choice between goods. You, if it's evil, don't choose it. <laughs> you hear that. If the door to evil is open, that spirit is evil that's opening that door. Don't go in. Is in alignment with the truth of God in Scripture? Does this align with the way of Jesus? What I mean by the way of Jesus 
is the upside down kingdom of God. If you just look at like big ideas and doctrines in scripture, oftentimes they can be really well balanced. But then if you focus in on the person of Jesus and the kingdom of God, you'll realize that the way of Jesus is a downward descent. A downward descent that, yes, ultimately leads to an exaltation. So you, you need that downward V before. That's the way of Jesus. Is this in alignment with the way? In other words, it's not a pyramid. <laughs> it's not give me what I want right now. It's not self-actualization. That, th- this is a very countercultural discernment question. Is it in alignment with the way of Jesus? And does this, number three, align with the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is wrapped up in the word love. Love. Does this lead me into deeper love for other people? Now, you see all of these playing out in Acts 15 in their community discernment. James says, guys, we've seen God work here. And he says in verse 15, this is in agreement with Scripture as it is written. If, if you can't come in your decisions and in your directions, if you can't come to it is written, you need to slow down. Is it in alignment? That's what James does. And then the second piece, is this in alignment with the way of Jesus? Is this, he says, I know we ought not to make it difficult on those who are turning to God. He says, this is the way of Jesus. We have to invite them into the grace of God that we experience. And then, does this align with the fruit of the Spirit? He says, we're all in agreement when they actually write out the letter. He says, we all agree on this. There's a spirit of unity and love so that when people get this mail, they start celebrating because this moves them into deeper love for other people. The fourth question, last question on test questions, <laughs> is this. Is this wise for me now? Is this wise for me now? There are lots of open doors that will come into your life that you may want them, but really that may be for a later time. And you may want them, but you've got to figure out some things now. Does this question of, is this wise? Is this wise for me and this is this wise for me now. Do you see those pieces? After community discussion, I think that opens up the door to planning. Planning, number three. When Kelsey and I were discerning, it's one of the biggest discernment processes that we've ever had. We were discerning whether or not to go into church planting. Uh, you can tell where that one ended, right? But at the time, I, I really didn't know. I, I knew the Lord had burdened me with a passion for church planting. And I wondered, and I really thought that what the Lord wanted me to do was stay in my position where I was a preaching minister and to basically be a sender, to send out other church plants from our church and send out other people from our church. But I wanted to consider it. And so one of the things that they sent us to do in our, in our process, we, you know, we let the elders in. We said, can you help us evaluate? We let in some mentors and people that we love. Can you help us evaluate? And then our mentor sent us to uh, an assessment course in Washington, D.C. And the assessment course evaluated us, particularly me, as a church planter in 17 categories. You may have heard me talk about this either around our table with some of you or maybe I've even shared it up here. But it was very invasive. It was exhausting. It was three days there's a psychologist there who's observing everything and giving you like formal test results. And then everyone else is just observing all of your interactions and meetings. There's just hours and hours of interviews, all with the goal of providing discernment. And for us, this was really the last step 
in our discernment process. This was, this was the end of our discernment season. When we came back, that was when planning started, one way or another. And the grid that they use to give results is basically red light, yellow light, green light. Do you know what red light means? Stop. Do not pass go, right? There are enough significant issues here that this is not good. This is not good. Most of us never come to red lights. Most of us frequently come to yellow lights. What does yellow light mean? Speed up, right? <laughs> Speed up. You don't want to stop after all. No, no. It, it means like caution or extended transition. This is the in-between of go and stop. Go, yeah, it's coming. In some ways, the yellow light actually means caution or wait. And particularly with this assessment process, I went there thinking that I was going to get a, a yellow light. Yellow light is when it says you, you need more preparation. You're not quite ready now. Instead, start on this lesser thing, and then you can do that other thing later. You need more resources. You need more tools. You need wait. Wait. If red is stop, yellow is wait. But let me show you how this plays out in, in the book of Acts. There's a couple of phrases that really stand out to me in Acts 19, 20, and 21. Look at this in verse 21. This is the NIV. It says that Paul resolved in the spirit to go where? To Jerusalem. Do you see it? How did Paul resolve this? In the spirit. All right, again, Acts 20. He says, behold, now, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. Do you see, he's, he's resolved and he's constrained. Do you know what constrained me? It's like, I, I, I'm boxing. This is where he wants me to go. Where? Jerusalem. Look at this, though. Acts 21. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there seven days. He, he's on, on his travels. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Chapter before, he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Chapter before that, I'm resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 21, other people are invited into the process, and they say, don't go to Jerusalem. And then in the next city, Agabus shows up. We know Agabus. He's already made an appearance in chapter 11. Agabus, if you're testing the prophets, is a reliable prophet. He, in prophecy, predicted the famine that would come across Judea, and it, it shaped Paul's entire missionary journeys of fundraising for those poor people. Agabus, that Agabus shows up, and he says this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and they will deliver him into the hands of Gentiles. And so when we heard this, we... Luke is writing, he's, he's in Paul's travel group, and Luke is with them saying, we and the people there urged him, don't go to Jerusalem. Do you see that this is a yellow light? This is not go, go, go. This is a proceed with caution. This is a, you have listened to the Spirit, yes, Paul, but we have also listened to the Spirit, and we have something to say. But look, look how it ends. He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased 
and then said, let the will of the Lord be done. This actually happens a lot in the ministry of Paul, where there's kind of a breaking of ways, where discernment doesn't come to a unanimous agreement. But what happens is the Spirit of God actually works through multiple pathways. What's going on here? I think this is a yellow light situation. There seems to be some uncertainty in the application of even prophecy. I I think Agabus' prophecy is exactly right. It's actually confirmed in just a couple of chapters. And he says, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested. You're going to go in chains. And they say, so you shouldn't go. But Paul says, I know that's what's happening. That's why I'm going. You see, because his test questions, is this in alignment with Scripture? Yes. Have have people ever suffered for the cause of the gospel before? Yes, that that happens in Scripture. Is this the way of Jesus? For Paul, it's it's yes. And the book of Acts actually, in really clever ways, makes this, it's it's so cool. What happens the last week of Jesus' life is stretched out over years and many chapters at the end of the book of Acts. He goes to Jerusalem. He is betrayed by people close to him. He is wrongfully arrested and held. And then he has to go before the governor. It's not Pontius Pilate, it's Festus and Felix. So the names change, but he goes before the governor. And then from the governor, he goes to Herod. Just like Jesus went to Herod. But instead of Herod the Great, it's Herod Agrippa. So he's playing out the footsteps of Jesus a generation later. Is this the way of Jesus? Paul says, I want to... I want to walk in the sufferings of the Messiah. I want to share in his death so that by any means I can share in his life. Other people look on and say, we don't want you to suffer. And Paul says, guys, what else are we here for? I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a proceed with caution. He takes in their discernment and messages from the spirit, but then he goes anyway. He goes anyway. To share in the way of Jesus. And then finally, we see green light. Green light means go. Green light means go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him and He will make your paths straight. When we put our will under His, we go. And then over time, He guides our will into His. Let me show you this. This is, last piece, let me just make this point kind of quickly. The graphic is terrible, but do you see what I'm trying to capture here? That in this process of waiting on the Lord, over time, you get these spiritual muscles of what he calls patience in in James chapter 1, that patience can have its perfect work, and we, we build up perseverance and a capacity to endure. In the small ways of waiting on the Lord and following a process that looks to him, not me, to guide us, then we get the resilience and the confidence that he's actually going to go with us this time too. This may be a longer waiting season than we've been in before, but he has been faithful to me. And when I look at scripture, I see that he's been faithful throughout generations and generations. He has never failed me yet. Wait on the Lord. And over time, the confidence builds. But it's not just that our confidence builds. It's that his mission moves. He keeps calling us into something new and and deeper. And then we get to look back on our lives and you realize, God, I got to be part of that? 
that special encounter or that amazing time, that season of life, I got to be in, 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 in it because of you. Confidence plus mission, this is what it looks like to be deeply transformed by God's grace. I want to close with just two reflections. I want to respond to you, Don, and Suzette. Suzette, where'd you go? Um, thank you for your reflections earlier in our gathering. I want to go back to Gethsemane, just for a second. He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Slow down. Wait. This is a, this is a prayer time. And then he goes and he prays, and he says, let this cup pass from me. Anything's possible for you. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The ultimate struggle of waiting on the Lord is whether you can trust him or not. And, and this man shows us that we can trust him. Because he, he said, not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And then he goes to the cross. And then in the ultimate act of what it looks like to wait, he is murdered and buried. And in the grave, he waited and waited and waited with no agency, with no power, but then the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, breathing new life into him, and he came out of the grave. The one who said, not my will, but yours be done, willed life for him, but it came through a season of waiting and hardship. Would you stand? I want to, um, a little alteration here. I'm going to pray your prayer from Psalm 143, 8 through 10. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God, and may your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. Amen. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everybody.